You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, record it when we can, um, <laughs> and uh, try to get it on the internet in a timely fashion. Hey, uh, sometimes that takes, you know, traversing some almost insurmountable obstacles. <laughs> yeah, I, I, one of the things that really appealed to me about podcasting uh, versus blogging, because I used to try to do more blogging, but I am a one of those people i'm a decent writer but i'm a terrible editor yeah and and so <laughs> you know you'd wind up with some sentences that were sometimes and sometimes not yeah yeah <laughs> so um but there is still quite a bit of behind the scenes stuff that goes on even with podcasting that you mm-hmm. really have to to watch out for and uh, i'm much better at editing audio than i am uh, text. Right. So, well, with text, I read what I want to be there, not what's actually there, where audio kind of confronts you with actually what's there. So, yeah. Yeah. If it, in case anyone notices there's like a change in my backdrop, that's part of the obstacles we're ever come. The trees leafed out at my house. And so I have no signal. And so everyone listening, just pray they get the fiber optic to my house quicker than projected. Uh, I have conduit run. We're just waiting for the line to actually make its way down the country road to mm-hmm, our location. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I get that. I'm st- uh, you're you're on Lake Region. I'm still waiting on OEC to get to my neighborhood where we are. So, if you're listening, OEC. Please, <laughs> please. please. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not bad here. I mean, it's 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 AT and T, but I feel like I'm getting charged a bit much for my internet. Um. So if you're listening AT and T, AT and T, you well, know what you're doing. Almost everything we've done up to this point has been hot spotted off my cell phone. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. I mean, for for a hot spot. So yeah, you know, but we, to, we've been working with what we've got. Today it said no dice, not going to work, not going to cooperate. So I just packed up and moved venues, and we're we're going to try to make it work. And the other fun thing we're dealing with this week was. I hurt my eye this past week. And so I'm going to try to read my notes and I'm going to try to be coherent. And if you see me making funny faces, it's because the eye decided to like flare. So I'm just warning everybody up front, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, w- I would like to apologize about last week, not having a show. Uh, Mickey and I were out of town again. Um, so we just were not able to record. I mean, we were going to try to do two episodes, but then I was sick. So I was not very interactive. Well, I mean, it was just, and you, you didn't have I was, the notes ahead and, and cause you had plenty of stuff going on in your end. Right. We but, always uh, have plenty of stuff. But I, I, we should be pretty much back on schedule now for a while, unless something else comes up that's just, unexpected. Yeah. Just completely uh, unforeseen. <laughs> uh, so, you know, thank you everyone for your patience. We, I'm excited to be back on it. Um, I still have. My allergies decided to get me again this week. I don't know. It, it, it's just, it's frustrating. And, uh, 
you know, all of this just shows how committed we are, right? That's, sure. you know, I mean, <laughs> sure. I not mean, that we're I, disorganized I think, or that. <laughs> yeah. I think we've missed four episodes in what, almost three years or something right. like that. So I think we're doing pretty good. I, I think, I think we are doing pretty good. The, um, and another minor note, uh, for our YouTube fans out there. Um, the reason I, I figured out the reason I look so excessively red is not just that it's summer, <laughs> but so I, this is, uh, you know, you can skip ahead if you don't want to hear all this, but, uh, Mickey and I had to have our shower redone cause there was, were plumbing issues. Well, the closet's right next to the bathroom. And we also had a door moved to extend the shower while we had everything torn out. Um, you know, just get it all done at once. Right. And, but so because of the demo dust, all of my clothes are on the studio couch over <laughs> here and Mickey's clothes are all on our living room couch. I know she loves me telling the world this, um, <laughs> but I'll find out if she actually listens in a few months. You know, it's uh, just anyhow. part of a remodel. It's just what happened. Yeah, it's, it is. And so there, our house has been a mess all summer. Uh, it was supposed to be a five-day <laughs> remodel. It wound up being closer to five weeks. But I can't actually get to the blinds to open them right now because the clothes are piled so high. So I haven't had any natural light and so i'm just getting like colored by the reflection <laughs> of the monitor um and so that that's why i've looked so and you've got that colorful hideous wall color that just doesn't know what color it wants to be so but we won't go off on my dislike of agreeable yeah, gray I, it's either agreeable gray or accessible beige i'm not sure which one it doesn't uh, know that's the point of these colors they don't know what color they are <laughs> uh they do make rooms look much bigger though See, that's, deceptive. That's the, They're even... see, that's the point of the color is it makes the room look bigger and it also is made to go with any furniture decor, really. It's for people who can't commit. No, I, I, and I should note, this was the color it was when y'all bought it. Yeah, this, so. we, yeah, we moved in with this color. We have not, uh, we've not done any painting except for some touch-ups here that we had color matched with, but, you know, we're... <laughs> that's a whole nother story, but that's, I, I, I'm guessing our real estate saga is not why people are here to listen. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. And so we should move on. So yeah, we're still in first Kings. We just wrapped up chapter two. The last time we were with you, uh, chapter two ended with the statement that the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And this is kind of the, the signal that this overlap that had been going on between the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, it's over now. So uh -huh. there, there's what happens now is solely Solomon's responsibility. And, you know, and this is because all the loose ends from David's reign, they've kind of been tied up. And, you know, there were a lot because I mean, we had Adonia who had tried to take the throne. We had Joab, the general who had defied David and killed Ab Absalom, Amasa and Abner for people who like alliteration. And, you know, and the blood guilt that threatened Solomon's reign. That then we had Abathar, the priest, whose support of Adonia could have, you know, hurt uh, Solomon's credibility as king. And then Shimei, who had cursed David and had been very vocal of his support for the house of Saul. And he also could have posed a threat for Solomon. And now that these threats are taken care of, Solomon and his reign, they, they can move forward. And we can see the chapter of chapter three really begins with the story of Solomon and what he's going to do. And unfortunately, the chapter three opens up with a kind of an ominous note 
because the very first verse says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. So imagine you're an ancient Israelite. Your very existence as a nation is founded on these origin stories of coming out of Egypt, coming out of that oppression and slavery imposed on you by Pharaoh and all the abuses that your ancestors endured. You don't read this passage or this verse passively. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a knee-jerk reaction that comes along with anything to do with Egypt. So even though we kind of read it and go, okay, he got married and on to the rest of the story. I mean, it almost seems like this really superfluous detail in what's to follow because it doesn't really have anything to do with what follows. But this is a little bit of foreshadowing and a little bit of a hint that things aren't going to be as great as they possibly could. And this is, again, you know, a lot of people think that first, uh, well, Judges, first, second Samuel and first and second Kings were probably written by the same people. So we should expect this kind of foreshadowing from our writer these little hints to be paying attention. And this is why it's so good to do these in-depth book studies because now we're familiar with the writer's style. And we know that when he drops these things into the text that we should be paying attention. The other thing that this verse did was it made me realize something I missed in the previous chapter because, you know, there's always more than what any one teacher is teaching you. Oh, yeah. It's the Bible really is a goldmine that you have to sift through and find all the little nuggets. So when Solomon banished Abathar, we talked about how that was the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy and how uh, God had said that, you know, basically he was done with the house of Eli, that they were no longer going to serve as his high priest. And in that case, it was a totally, totally positive thing. This is we want Egypt out of rulership, whether we're talking the religious rule of the priest, or we want, or we're talking the king, and you know this uh, prophecy is in First Samuel three ten through fourteen. If anybody wants to to look it up, but Samuel also warned in chapter eight, verses ten through sixteen, of the dangers a king poses, and he says specifically in chapter First um, Samuel, uh, Samuel eight verse seventeen, you will be his slave. This is what a king is going to do for you. You're going to become a slave. And we should never forget that all of Solomon's reign is both uh, informed by prophecy, it's fulfilling prophecy, and is enacted prophecy. So you cannot distinguish anything from Solomon's actions from something that has been foretold or something that's going to foreshadow what will come. So there, there's this really prophetic element, even as we're reading what seem to be just narratives. And so we need to be paying attention to how prophecy interplays with, with uh, Solomon's reign. And we're going to, I'm going to try to bring that out as we go through. Now, of course, the rabbis, they, they do their normal thing. They want to try to excuse what Solomon's doing here. They're going to say that marrying Pharaoh's daughter could have happened for some really good reasons. Uh, one uh, solution was that he's uh, solidifying his position as king. And if we're going strictly by logistical, political protocol, this is a very wise thing for Solomon to do. Because now we're not just saying that, you know, he has a wife. We're saying that Egypt, the nation, and the leadership of Egypt actually recognizes the validity and 
the legitimacy of Israel as a nation, because it's only if they view Israel as a legitimate nation that is the king is worthy to marry one of their princesses. That's actually one of the things that I was thinking about just now was that the uh, it does say it does kind of put Israel on the map, so to speak, uh, in as far as uh, public relations and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, inter- international what do they call that foreign foreign relations mm-hmm. that's the ending uh, of the word there but yeah that 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 really does put them up there because you know at the time Egypt was one of the larger major uh, players power, yeah one of the larger powers in the world and really would continue to be so for for several centuries following this and we're actually going to see as we get further into kings that Egypt is one of the uh people that Israel is might turn to for support because they're such a powerful army and they've always been uh, well at least in the ancient world they were always a very powerful entity to be dealt with and so the question was do you trust Egypt or do you trust God mm-hmm. now the second way that the rabbis try to make this seem a little better because remember Solomon's the golden child nobody wants Solomon to do something wrong because he is the fulfillment he he is really what established David as king without the son on the throne we just have another warlord or judge we're not we don't have a king it's not until we have that succession passed off to an heir a blood heir that we can now have a dynasty or a davidic kingdom so they want to make Solomon to be very noble. So another motivation that they attribute to this is that Solomon was trying to convert Pharaoh's daughter and that she would be able to influence all of Egypt to be converted to Judaism. You know, um, I doubt it. I mean, let's, let's just be real. Uh, Judaism has never been about proselytizing. It, it is open to people who are uh, willing to accept the tenets of Judaism. They're they're willing to to uh, accept converts, but they do not actively. And even today, Judea, uh, Judaism is not a religion that actively seeks to convert people to its religion. Right. So it's kind of hard for me to see that as actually happening. And then, of course. Uh, there's some debate on whether or not uh, it was permissible for Solomon to marry an Egyptian, because in, I believe it's Deuteronomy, the Egyptian convert isn't allowed into the temple until, I believe it's the third generation. So even if she had converted, they still wouldn't be able to join in any kind of uh, temple worship at that point in time. Now, one bit of interesting lore. Well, I mean, I, how long is that? tradition been around though well that goes so, back well that goes back to deuteronomy at least does it okay yeah, like, yeah. i couldn't remember there now here but there's the other big question because we later find out that the scroll of deuteronomy has been lost so does solomon right. even know that and we don't know how long the scroll was lost but uh we do know it's recovered in the book of kings so you know there's some debate uh, about whether even uh, or not solomon had any any um understanding that there might be a problem with this yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot. Yeah, that isn't. Yeah. I don't have all of Deuteronomy memorized. If I would kind of, you know, anybody who would actually memorize Deuteronomy, I, I would like mad respect for those people because mm-hmm. Deuteronomy numbers, yeah, those would be crazy. But uh, I do, I did find a little bit of rabbinic lore that I thought was interesting. Now, remember, when we're talking rabbinic lore, we're not talking scripture. I'm not saying this is true. We're just saying this is one way that the rabbis try to make sense of what happened. 
Mm-hmm. And they said on the day that Solomon married uh, Pharaoh's daughter, that the angel Gabriel came down and put a stick in the waters of the Mediterranean and the mud began to uh, gather around it until the land where the city of Rome would be built was formed. And basically what they're saying here is that by our sister has dogs um, by uh Marrying Pharaoh's daughter, he actually planted the seeds that led to the destruction of the temple. And so, and it actually, the destruction of even the second temple, because it was the Romans who uh, fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that it would be destroyed. Uh, one of the, the fun things, uh, every time I think about the destruction of the, of the temple uh, during the Roman occupation, you know, Jesus says in his prophecy that not one rock would be on top of the other. So. During the, the Roman attack of Jerusalem, this is just has nothing to do with today's topic. It's just one of those things I find interesting. The temple was set on fire. And because there was so much gold in the temple, of course, gold has a very low melting point. It melted. It went down between the rocks. And so the Romans went in and removed each rock to get the gold from between the seams of the rock. And that's how Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. So, hmm. you know. That's one of the cool things about supernatural interaction in the Bible. So the prophecy is completely uh, supernatural and divinely inspired, of course. But the methodology and the means often has have some kind of uh, reasonable explanation, something that we can wrap our heads around. So I, I think it's always interesting to see how God you know, interplays the two things, whether we're talking about a supernatural event or a natural event, that they go together in God's economy. And mm. neither one precludes the existence of the other. So anyway, as we continue forward in, in Kings uh, chapter three, we're told what Solomon's three major building projects are. One, his temple, his palace, I'm sorry, his palace, the place where he's going to live. The second one is the temple, which obviously Chronicle spends a lot of time discussing how David prepared uh, everything for Solomon to do this. And then the defensive walls around the city. So these are the three main things that Solomon's going to accomplish. This is uh, what he sets out to do, and this is what he actually manages to do. But the house for Pharaoh's daughter will have to wait until after he's accomplished this, and she will have a palace outside of the city. And of course, that just sets off all kinds of speculation within the rabbinic community because why did she have to wait and was it appropriate for her to be housed in Jerusalem? Uh, Was Solomon deliberately trying to divide her from uh, the holy space of Jerusalem? And we'll talk more about that when we get to uh, some more stories about her. But the next verse gives some context for what's getting ready to happen. And it says, the people were sacrificing at the high place. However, because, uh, sorry, I'm having a hard time reading because of my eye. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because there was no house yet had been built for the name of the Lord. So this verse is an excellent example of how we date and try to understand the formation of the books and how we receive them. Because the writer takes time to explain to their readers why Solomon would go to a high place in Bama. Bible writers only do this when either and the practices have changed from the time the the recorded practice occurred, or there's a change from the time the practice was written down until um, the final form of the book is achieved. So this gives us some some 
idea of how the book was formed because now we know that the way we received it was finished off sometime after the temple had been completely built and the prohibition had been put in place against the high places. So, um, you know, these, these are really important little clues in trying to understand how the book was brought together. Now, later worshiping in the high places will be forbidden, uh, as, you know, as in sacrificing. You, all of this stuff has to happen at the temple after the temple is finished. Um, and the reason for this is there's a lot of problems with high places. Um, many cultures worshiped in a high places, and they would worship their gods and goddesses there, but they would often worship multiple gods and goddesses there. They weren't always dedicated to a single um, a single deity. And Ellen White, uh, she's from St. Michael's College. She wrote an article for the Biblical Archaeology Society. It's called High Places, Altars, in the Bama. She points out that while the Hebrew Bama, which is often translated as high place, does not necessarily mean a, a hilltop. And I think that's kind of what we think of when we talk about high places. Um, high places can be in many different locations. We have biblical examples of high places in towns. We're going to come across those in 1 Kings 13, 32, and in 2 Kings 17, 29, and 2 Kings 23, 5. We know that there's a high place in Jerusalem, in the gates of Jerusalem. That's in 2 Kings 23, 8. Ezra and Jeremiah both describe high places as being in valleys and ravines. So it's very possible that this idea of a high place actually refers more to a platform that's erected in a place of worship rather than a, a geographical high place, although those were used too. Now, White cites uh, Martin J. Selman, who says, the essential feature of Abama was therefore not the location or height, though it usually consisted of a platform, sometimes an associated building or buildings, but its function... Uh, but its function as a site for as a yeah it functions as a site for religious purposes. So um, we also have places in the Bible where high places aren't automatically condemned. Uh, probably one of the most famous is Bethel. That's where God appears to Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Gibeon here in this uh, passage. But then we also have Rama, which was uh, Samuel's house. So that's just three examples where high places are not necessarily a bad thing. If you remember uh, with uh, Rama, that's where Saul appeared to to Samuel and was, you know, he was looking for the the donkeys and Samuel is having the feast that he's already anticipating Saul joining him at. And the girls tell him, hurry up, you know, the feast is going to be going to be through. So we have examples of high places being okay, And um, the problem is God commanded in Deuteronomy 12.4 that the high places should be destroyed. He said, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the places that the Lord your God chose out of all your tribes and put his name and make his, make his habitation there. There you shall go. And then he goes on to describe um, the various worshiping practices, the worship practices at the time. So in scholarly circles, there's this huge debate on how appropriate it was for, for Solomon to actually worship in a high place. And, uh, sorry, nose pickle. Uh, and so it, it was, it's really interesting to me because um, there's some who actually say that what happens next, which, I mean, I'm sure people know the story, you know, God appears to Solomon and asks him what he wants. But there's, um, they say that that's not actually God blessing Solomon, that's God cursing Solomon 
And I, I don't agree with that, but I see how they get there because they're seeing two very problematic things with Solomon's reign right from the get-go. One is that he married Pharaoh's daughter. The second is now that he's worshiping in a high place. And But I think the debate really is kind of, it's an example of how we overlook some things, even very smart people and very educated people. The command to, to destroy the high places where the Canaanite gods were worshipped happened hundreds and centuries, hundreds of years, centuries before uh, Solomon builds the temple. There has to be some kind of stopgap measure. There's got to be something in place for people to, uh, to be able to worship God. And so if all religious sites, not just uh, you know, hilltops with pillars and uh, are considered to be high places, then it's kind of you know, a generic term. And it doesn't necessarily refer to the Canaanite high places when we're talking about places where God is being worshipped. And so I don't think it has to be quite as much of a debate as it is. And the verse clearly tells us that the reason why Solomon's doing this is because there's no temple yet. And so I think sometimes we get very, very convoluted uh, in, in how we're thinking about this. And we've got to be careful to, to follow the timeline of biblical prohibitions because God never expects people to do something that's impossible. And so he makes concessions for where people are. And then as you know, society progresses, then he introduces, hey, don't do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, it, 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 it almost kind of seems too like there might be something to this that there wasn't really a place prescribed to go and meet God. But because Solomon was seeking Yahweh, mm-hmm. that God just met him where he was. Well, and I, I, I kind of wonder if the, what the impact for that is on our theology of, of people today. And it, does that play out similarly to someone who's seeking truth? And then does God go, okay, well, we're going to put you in the right place to find it, or I'm going to give you some kind of sign? Like, I'll meet you, you where know, you we, are. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, we we've you know we've heard of of Muslims having dreams. Mm-hmm. We've heard you have uh, a friend who um, got <laughs> some message from God through tarot cards. Yeah, and when she went back to look through the cards to verify what she saw, the cards that she saw and the entry in the book to interpret mm-hmm. him didn't exist. Right, right. Um, and then she know, completely freed herself. I mean, she yeah, and then yeah, then she got rid of all that, <laughs> and 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 got back into into church and and mm-hmm. you know so i i think there's i don't know i i think there's a, a lot more there's a, there's a lot more flexibility with how god interacts with us than we want to give him every revelation we have from god is a concession to our ability to understand and if we think that God did not make a major concession to humanity's limitations by giving us a Bible, by creating churches, then we're overlooking how amazing of a gift we're given. And so just because somebody else's concession might be a little different, I don't think we need to dismiss it as being God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about this yesterday in a completely different context. Everything we accept as a given was a revelation to somebody. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, and that's everything, whether we're talking about, you know, the fact you can cut down trees and build houses or, you know, lights can work on electricity or, you know, there's oxygen in the air. Yeah, we accept this stuff. It's no big deal that the sun, I mean, the earth revolving around the sun, huge revelation. And so mm -hmm. I think we sometimes need to back off of our smugness and thinking that we arrived and, and recognize that all the knowledge and information that we just accept as normal and, and commonplace that everyone should know wasn't always that way. And the only reason why it is that way for us is because we had people who cared enough to make those investigations and try to discover and try to seek. So, you know, when we're looking back at ancient history, we have to extend some grace and we have to try to be empathetic if we're going to try to understand what they're actually experiencing in the moment. It's not mm. what we experience. Yeah, I mean, even even to the point where you're talking about like the the, the ignorance of things that just happen based on your culture. You know, uh, I I had a friend who was um, doing missions in some country I can't remember which, but they got they were one of the people asked you know in Job where it says he hangs the earth on nothing, and he was like, well, well, how does that work? And he's like, you know, and as much as we harp on the Bible not being a science book. Mm -hmm. This was a point where he could go, well, this is, this is what it's describing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I thought that was kind of cool. It's not on um, a turtle. Some guy's yeah, not holding it up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so he's like, he's like, so I'm going back trying to remember all of my, <laughs> <laughs> my middle school science classes. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, well, it was, it was, uh, it was a cool uh, story. I enjoyed it. But. I wish I had more details for everyone because I'm sure my <laughs> rendition was just riveting. Uh, well, but it's a, it's a good explanation. It's a good illustration of the fact that what we accept as commonplace isn't commonplace for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but one of the other things, and this was a really, I thought a brilliant observation. It's from Robert D. Nelson. Uh, she, he cited in Ellen White's article. And um, he says, the plurality of shrines, speaking of the, the shrines to Baal, inevitably reflected the local multiplicity of Canaanite, Baal's, uh, Canaanite Baal worship, implying a Yahweh of Dan and a Yahweh of Bethel. So what he's saying here is if there were multiple locations to worship God, they were very easily could have uh, become this idea that there were multiple Yahwehs. And if you study Canaanite mythology, one of the really kind of interesting things that happens, and this is a gross oversimplification, so um, just I'm using it for illustrative purposes, that each region who worshiped Baal basically focused on the elements and attributes of Baals in his stories that best suited their particular need and culture. So by doing this, they, they obscured some of the other aspects and, and essentially created a new Baal, even though some of the, the primary and foundational elements of the mythos would be intact, uh, the, the, the details were were often different, and this resulted in some even conflicting stories of the Baal saga. And by saying, by God saying, "Hey, no, you're going to worship me at one place," he really denied the the chance for there to be this manipulation and, and this massaging of his story in order to serve the people. Because each of these Baals, as they're created, they're created in the image of the worshiper. They reflect the needs and the wants of the worshiper rather than 
the God as originally described. So God just totally rules it out from the beginning. And I'm like, that's a really good point because I, I would have never thought of that. I mean, mm-hmm. for us, the idea that you can worship, you know, we're in small town, Oklahoma. We grew up in a, ha- uh, in a house, in a city where there's 600 people, there's eight different churches. So the idea that you can worship God everywhere, yeah, that's commonplace to us. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But um, that that was not the way it was. And there was a reason behind it. And it's not oppressive. It's mm-hmm. not an oppressive reason. It is actually has a lot of significance to it. So moving on, verse three, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay, so very first thing out of the gate, it's interesting. Solomon loves the Lord. He doesn't fear God. When you go back in the previous stories, almost everything that you read is people fearing God. So Solomon loves him. Uh, I think that's a very interesting observation. Uh, Then... We need to understand what love means in a scriptural context, mm-hmm. because let's just face it, our Western ideas of love are completely messed up and all over the place and often have very little to do with actual love. Um, a lot of lust, but not love. But I won't go down that rabbit trail. Now, Simon DeVry- J. DeVries makes a note in regards to the love of a deity impl- it implies a moral concern and commitment rather than mere affection. And then what he does is he goes back to Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy talks about God's love in several or the love for God in several different places. And he pulls verses to illustrate. And I'm just going to read a couple because I think you're going to see this, uh, what's going on here very easily. It says Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy thirty sixteen, If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, and it continues from there. Deuteronomy 30, 20 says, Love the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of days. So to love the Lord in scripture always results in action. It's in obedience to his word as it's been given to you, which is some interesting implications for New Testament teachings where we just say, like, go ahead. It's like James was on to something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not just having an affection for God or even gratitude for God or even an awe for God. Are you going to obey him? Are you going to listen to what he says? So. I think too often we've made it so simple, and I say simple kind of facetiously, um, the idea of loving God is just to kind of be on friendly terms with the idea of God, but not to really worry about um, doing the things that foster that relationship. So when the writers of of Kings says, hey, Solomon loved the Lord, he's saying God, Solomon obeyed the Lord. That this is beyond like you said, just that affection. And what's interesting is that we have, um, which is, say, sorry, which is interesting because we do have this on the heels of these very problematic issues of the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter and the fact that he's worshiping in the high place. And it says that, um, you know, 
he walks in the statutes of David, his father. Um, David told us what his statutes were. We, we don't have to guess at what they were. And um, if you remember back when we talked about the end of 2 Samuel, and there's that chiasm in those last four chapters, and the chiasms come down to the, this um, psalm that David wrote. And within the psalm that David wrote, in, which is another chiasm, he gives us his explanation of his statutes. And this is what David says. And this is um, 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. From his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord <coughs> excuse me, rewarded me according to the righteousness and the cleanness of my hands. So mm-hmm. David's statutes were God's statutes. And this is the reason why whenever we're talking about the weightiest commandment in all the Torah, it's to honor your mother and father. Because if you honor your mother and father, who were presumably raised you up in the Jewish faith, you were also honoring God. So it, there's no distinction there. And now the verse says he, only he made sacrifices in the high places or made offerings in the high places. And the rabbis attempt, again, to reconcile this idea of Solomon making offerings in the high places, which is later forbidden, and with the fact that he is loving the Lord and following David's statutes. And because, you know, there seems to be a conflict here. And so they offer a a slightly little more tortured translation of the verse. Uh, they, They translate the only with more of the inflection of, or they don't really translate, they interpret it. Uh, It's not a translation. It's how they say you should read it, which becomes an interpretation. Uh, Mm. Only or except, unlike David, his father, he sacrificed in his high places. Uh, And they they make the claim that David did not sacrifice in high places, which um, we'll talk about how they get there when we get into verse four, which we're going into. So uh, Solomon goes to Gibeon, in verse four, to a great high place and offers up 1,000 burnt offerings. And we've already encountered Gibeon in several different places. And we first encountered Gibeon in Joshua 9. That's when the Gibeonites hear that Israel is coming to Canaan and they hear about the uh, victory in Jericho. And they're like, we don't want that to be us. So they pretend that they're foreigners traveling through the land and they make an alliance with Joshua. And then when Joshua finds out that he was tricked, then uh, the Gibeonites are put into slavery to perform the more mundane task around the temple, not the sacred duties, but, you know, chopping firewood, hauling water, that sort of thing. And so that's where we first encounter the Gibeonites is with this act of uh, deception. Mm-hmm. Then in Joshua 2, uh, Gibeon is the location where, uh, I don't think that's Joshua 2, I think I've got the wrong verse, I think it's Joshua 10. Anyway. Gibeon's the location where the sun stands still during the battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in Joshua 18, we find out that the city of Gibeon is given to the tribe of Benjamin. So when Solomon goes to um, Gibeon, rather than sacrificing in Jerusalem, he's actually making a very po- important political statement. He's saying Benjamin is still a part of Israel. They weren't just rejected just, just because their family is no longer in power, that they've lost the kingship. and They've also lost the Ark of the Covenant, which is now in Jerusalem. So the symbol for God's presence and um, the place to 
to worship is now outside of the Benjaminite territory and in Jerusalem in the territory of Judah. So this is kind of a a statement that, yes, you're still a part of the country. You're still a part of the nation, and I still recognize your significance. The, the next time we encounter Gibeon, uh, this is in 2 Samuel 2 at the pool of Gibeon, and that's where Joab faces off with Abner, and Asahel, the, his brother, is killed, which leads to Joab killing Abner later on. The next time we encounter Gibeon, it's in 2 Samuel 20, and this is where Joab kills Amasa when David had replaced Joab as general and put Amasa in his place. And so with the fact that Gibeon's in the tribe of Benjamin territory, Solomon could say, hey, I'm addressing the schism in the nation. And the fact that he is going to this place where Joab, who has done all these acts of violence um, where, where they were actually committed, Solomon could be saying, I'm dealing with the schism in my own house, because you need to remember that Amasa was um, Joab's cousin, and both Joab and Amasa were David's nephew. So Solomon may be making some very pointed statements by, um, by choosing to worship here it is his per- first public act of worship as a king. And the reason why I wonder, um, well, not the reason why I wonder this, I'm sorry. I was jumping on notes, but I, I, I do have some speculation because the fact that we've got two instances where Joab had committed, you know, these acts of violence, murdering members of his family and his countrymen, that I, I have to wonder if Solomon's also addressing some of the, the fallout from Joab specifically, from Joab's actions specifically. Because if you remember back in the previous chapter of First Kings, uh, chapter 2, verse 33, this is what Solomon says to Benaniah about Joab. He says, so shall, the blood guilt, so shall their blood guilt, that's Abner and Amasa, come back on the head of Joab and the head of his descendants forever. But for David and his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forever. So I, I have to wonder if that's not part of what, what Solomon's trying to address here too, that as I re, you know, as I reunify both my family and the nation, it, it's going to come through this act of unity with God. So, the the next time we encounter Gibeon, actually, um, it's also I think very informative because the Gibeonites are identified as the source or the reason for uh, the three year famine at the end of David's reign. And if you remember in 2 Samuel 21, we find that Saul had somehow wronged the Gibeonites. It may have gone back to that slaughter of the priest at Nob. That was one of the speculation that, uh, that we threw out there. Uh, but it wasn't until David enacted some hardcore A&E justice and turned over seven of Saul's sons to be hung uh, that the famine was released. So this is the place where Solomon chooses to go. And I think there's a lot of significance there because we do see so many, so many acts of violence, so much wrong and so much um, justice that has either been remiss or not enacted until Solomon takes his place as the king or until the end of David's reign. So I think there's more to it than just, oh, well, this is where everybody goes to worship. Solomon's too savvy. He's too politically aware to do something just by rote. So 
We're also told that Solomon offers 1,000 burnt offerings. Um, now, a burnt offering is unique because, number one, it is an offering. It's not a sacrifice. And so a sacrifice is something that's required. An offering is just something that's given. It's more of a gift is a better way of thinking about it. Uh, also, offerings um, are completely consumed. That where a sacrifice, part of what is offered is given back to the one who's making the sacrifice to enjoy a feast with the priest and his family. And because this is an offering that is completely consumed, it's burned up in the fire and the, the, it goes up in smoke, it's also called an ascent offering because it all goes to heaven. And this type of offering is first described in Leviticus 1, and the procedures and the purpose are described. So I'm just going to read verse 4 because that's the important part for what we're discussing. It says, he, the person making the offering, shall lay his hand on the burnt offering and it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. So, okay, let's point out what, um, what's going on here. Number one, these, um, sorry, an offering can be anything that the person wants to bring to the temple. It does not have to be an animal. A sacrifice is always an animal. It always involves blood. Offerings, not so much. We're not told what Solomon's burnt offering is. It could have been a thousand steers. It could, or bulls, wouldn't have been steers. That would have been a no-no. Uh, it could have been, you know, doves. It could have been grain. It could have been, we, we, it could have been a combination. We don't know. Uh, that's not the important point. The important point is Solomon gave this extravagant gift to God. Um, but the reason why we misunderstand this, uh, what, a, what a burnt offering is for, is because we, we have kind of a poor understanding of what atonement is. Uh, the, the Hebrew word here is kafar. And I actually, I'm going to reference back to Dr. Heiser. He did an excellent series on the entire book of Leviticus. I highly recommend that podcast, uh, that series. It, it, it's, to date, it's still one of my favorites. But mm -hmm. He points out that we as modern Christians often think of as atonement as part of the forgiveness process. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily true when we're talking the Hebrew scriptures, particularly in Leviticus, because the blood of the offering or the sacrifice is never applied to the one sacrificing whatever. It, it, it's it, there's just no way that the blood is meant for a covering for the person bringing that to the temple. Uh, if that was the case, the blood would be applied to the person. It's not. Matter of fact, we never have the blood applied to the person except for a few places with the with the priest. And so that's a whole different issue. And the, we're also told that whenever there's the laying the hand on the offering, that somehow the person is conveying their sins and their guilt to the animal. That's never said in scripture. That's just something we've picked up and read into it. Uh, mm. It would be really hard to read this as an atonement for sin because guess what? Sin's never mentioned once in Leviticus 1. It, it's not talked about at all. So how could this be an atonement for sin if we aren't going to discuss sin? The Bible is very direct and very clear on those matters. Plus, we mm. also have other areas in the Torah and in Leviticus that explain what you do to deal with sin. It's not here. The, the blood off, the burnt offering here is so that you will be accepted. And so um, 
one of the things that uh, Dr. Heiser did was to make this parallel to help make it uh, more accessible. It's in Exodus 30, 30, 12, that same word kafar, that the atonement is trans, it translated as ransom. And this is a point where there's a census, they're coming out of Egypt, and they have to give half shekel each to go into the building of the temple. And so uh, the the ransom here. The tabernacle. Tabernacle, yes. The tabernacle here, uh, the, what the, sorry, this. The offering here allows them to work on the temple. And so, uh, what's, or the tabernacle, see? Yeah. So the purpose of the burnt offering, what, what's this all about? Um, Heiser described it as a knock on the door to initiate entrance into a sacred space. Uh, it, it's not the way we deal with sin. It's saying, I want to come near God. Uh, it's a reminder of how dangerous it is to draw near to a holy God. And you don't enter his presence lightly. You do it with reverence. You do it with awe. You do it with fear. And you only do it if God allows you to do it. You can't just flippantly walk into God's presence. And that is the amazing part of what the sacrificial um, system does. And I think it's appropriate that we take a minute to try to put aside our modern lenses and our modern view where we go, oh, if I want to talk to God or I want to be near God, I have to like kill something. How oppressive is that? I mean, why is that even a requirement? I mean, but you've got to compare it to the other systems of worship at the same time. And during that same time, you didn't have guaranteed access to your God. You, there was no set system in play that said that they would definitely be there and hear what you were praying to them. You could hope. You tried to do the right thing, and there might be prescribed rituals but there was no guarantee they were going to work. This is God's guaranteed seal of approval. This is how you do it. I'm basically giving you the keys to get in the door so you can talk to me. And, you know, and so I, I was, excuse me, I was thinking about this in terms of today that we might understand. Well, and it makes a lot of sense whenever you talk about it as just access to, to talk to God and not this idea of forgiveness of sin because we have basically established we don't do anything to save ourselves and can't do anything to save ourselves. And especially, and it's funny to me because I hear so much of this teaching that the animal sacrifice was for forgiveness of sin from a lot of people who, and I think I've talked about this before, but from a lot of people who are very, um, uh, very fundamentalist about a lot of these things and very uh, heavy on the, we cannot save ourselves. Right. So, it's it's it gets really confusing if you don't really understand it in the way that we've been talking about just now. Well, and, and think about it. So, uh, one way to to demonstrate this is go over to the story of Esther, and we all know the story. You know, uh, Vashti, Xerxes' former queen, has been kicked out because she wouldn't obey, and Esther has been chosen uh, to be the new queen, and she wants to go talk to her husband, the king. And she goes through this elaborate plan to make it happen. And she asked people to fast and pray so that she would might be accepted. And then when she approaches, I mean, there's a great deal of trepidation uh, because he could kill her. He could have her taken out and beheaded in a moment. He could have her stoned. He could have her tortured. All of this with, was within his power to do. And we will sit and praise uh, her discernment and her wisdom and how she, you know, approached with humility and humbleness, this king. Now, if we think that 
people in this time period should approach God with less respect and less trepidation than Esther approached a king? We have one messed up, fundamentally flawed view of the holiness of God. Because God's holiness is not something that we should take lightly. And we've got to remember the kings at this time, they were supposed to give you a glimmer of the awe that you should approach the, the God that they represented. They were that reflection, that embodiment of the God being worshipped. And, you know, if you, if you think about how unpredictable the gods were and how nobody knew whether or not the gods would accept them, you really see how this, this moment with Esther helps us wrap our mind around it. And so if she was in that much fear of a king, how much more should someone be in fear of, the, of God? And, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, if we try to bring this to a, a, a modern perspective, say that the president, pick one you like for this illustration. Um, mm. So he comes to you and he says, hey, I'm going to give you the key to my private resident. I'm going to give you the security clearance code on this card. And, um, you know, all the credentials you need to get in anytime you want to pop over and have a chat, you just, you know, pull these things out and there you go. I, I will make time to sit and talk with you. Nobody would consider a key on your keychain or a card in your wallet to be oppressive. And so if we look at this as the same way, everybody had animals. Okay. This was an agrarian culture where, where killing an animal was something you did every few days if you're going to eat meat. Mm -hmm. So hey, the, the best way to keep them fresh was not a refrigerator. On the hoof. Yeah, keep, <laughs> keep them well fed and well watered. Exactly. And so, but you know. Probably with well water. <laughs> Boo. Sorry. You are uh, a dad, I'm, aren't you? I, I am. I, so, but you know, it was just right there. I know, I know. Sometimes we can't help so, ourselves. But should I interrupt you again? Yeah, you should. Just for good measure. Obviously. So, <laughs> but but you know, also flip that example. Think about the idea of if the president or the you know king, queen, whoever you want to use, said, you know what, I really don't want you to have to mess with keys, and I don't want you to have to mess with any credentials or anything. So. I'm going to take away the security detail. There's not going to be any bodyguards. I'm going to take off the locks, the gates. We're, we're even going to do away with the doors. We're just going to take them down. And anybody who wants to wander in can wander in. That doesn't work either. You know, so we, we have to appreciate that these sacrifices were a way of ensuring the safety of the people who entered into God's presence. This was to make sure it was done in the right way. Why? Because he's holy. And I know that's just like a weird concept. We don't talk about the holiness of God. Everybody wants to focus on the love. Very few people want to talk about his holiness. His holiness is terrifying and it's spectacular. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, some of the ones who do want to talk about the holiness and the, uh, excuse me, holiness and justice oftentimes want to leave off the grace. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, you got to have both of them. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You just have half a God at that point. Exactly. And love without boundaries is not love. That's just an abusive relationship. And or, or Yeah, it's neglect. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think one of the really cool things when we move to the New Testament or the Christian scriptures, God doesn't remove those protective elements of drawing into his presence. He's extended them 
Now we can engage him anywhere we are, but it's only through the blood of Christ. It's only whenever we, we are walking in that relationship that was established through Christ's sacrifice. And so it's not, it, it's not that now there's no requirements and we can just flippantly pray however we want to, whenever we want to, because God changed the rules. No, God still abided by his own rules, his own reasoning, but he did it in such a way that we are capable of engaging with him wherever. It doesn't require a thousand burnt uh, offerings. It doesn't require, on our part, we don't have to go to a specific place. Why? Because he's with us now in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's really crazy to me that we fail to respect what that sacrifice cost God. You know, that the sacrifice that made that possible was the life of Lord Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't just go, oh, well, I can pray because that's who God is and that's what he's supposed to do. No, it's that way because he determined and he to, that it would be that way. And he made the sacrifice himself so it could be that way. And these lessons from the Old Testament or the Hebrew scripture are to remind us of what a privilege and blessing we have, not that it's just something we have a right to. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think sometimes we are just a little um, too nonchalant about all of this. And I just, I don't think we understand the gift we have in the access that we have to God because this was not the way it was in almost any culture at any point in time. But, but back to the point, uh, as far as with uh, First King and Solomon, uh, these were not to atone for sin. This is a declaration of intent. Solomon mm. wanted to rule according to the will of God, the statutes and the rules of God. And in doing so, he wanted to bring unity back to the land. And he wanted to, to make this play, the statement in a place where there had been so much division. And he decided to address it very head on and not ignore what had happened while his father was in, in control. And so um, we, we know that later the kingdom will be divided and there will be a major schism that's not going to be overcome until the end of time. And so we, we have this little bit of encouragement because it starts out in the right spot. We just know it's going to progress someplace bad because we know the rest of the story. But mm-hmm. we have to start here and recognize what Solomon is doing is right. It is good. And it's exactly what he should be doing. We don't have time today because there's one final issue to address. Why is Gibeon um, the home of a great high place? What makes it a great high place? We're going to get into that uh, on the next episode because um, that's kind of interesting because honestly, it was one of those things where I realized I made a mistake in something Mm. because I relied too much on what the commentaries in front of me were saying and the scholarly debate instead of reading my Bible. Imagine that. Yeah. 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 It's it's really easy to do that. Um, Sometimes it is easier to read books about the Bible than just to read the Mm -hmm. Bible. well, and it, it does show you that, yes, the, the scholarly work that's out there is a great resource. I, I, I never want to mm-hmm. knock the work that people have put into making that available to us. 
But sometimes scholars get so myopic and so focused on their one little issue or their one little passage, they forget to extend their vision and their search beyond just what's in, beyond what's right in front of them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it wasn't until I actually took time to do some further research on an unrelated uh, topic, uh, not really unrelated, that I actually began to see, oh, yeah, the answer for this great debate on whether the legitimacy of Solomon's worship in Gibeon was valid, you know, whether it was valid or not, or whether it was completely the wrong thing to do. The, the answer's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Some, now, something else I want to I want to mention, and this was, and I was I was kind of waiting to see if if this had any if if you were going to bring anything up about this, but one of the things that um that that I found interesting about uh, Solomon making an alliance with Pharaoh, it and this is going to be kind of me airing some grievances with <laughs> some some of the ways that people talk. I listen to a lot of a, a lot of different podcasters, and what's really astounded me is we've gone. It seems like um, the church has gotten pretty far away from "Father, forgive them, for they know what not what they do." To these people are the enemy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I don't know how you reconcile those two things, and getting also to Paul talking about we don't wrestle with flesh and blood that we that is the enemy on the you know the unseen realm basically mm-hmm. the powers and principalities things like that mm-hmm. which of course most people want to interpret as governmental entities <laughs> um yeah which not the case. i think yeah i don't really think that's necessarily what he was talking about but the idea that an alliance with egypt you're looking at Israel being right in the main trade routes of everything. Mm-hmm. And an alliance with Egypt would uh, preserve life. Yeah. And think of how many opportunities to save that many more lives by allowing Egypt to operate and not trying to go to war with Egypt. And I, I'm, I wonder about the parallel there, if there is one with our uh, current state of affairs with the way a lot of people are wanting to treat people outside the church. Because I really think that, number one, the way that Christ is presented by a lot of these churches is a ridiculous caricature of who Jesus was that, that's been just completely remade in their image. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious if there's something to that with making alliances to say, we can still live and and have our lives and in the same time be able to you know love the neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. show people god's love against these um, there is no law yeah, yeah. Yes, against such there is no yeah, they, yeah. anyway well that's a that's one for another topic <laughs> but i i just wonder uh if there's any kind of parallel there that have you seen or considered you know, it, it's it's very i hadn't considered it from that perspective but as far as like just solomon and pharaoh's daughter it, it's so debated uh and it, it they're about whether or not it was appropriate or the right thing to do i i think strictly from a political standpoint absolutely uh it was the smart thing to do mm-hmm. um stopping war absolutely a smart thing to do whether it was in line with the torah that's kind of a debate because there is a certain level of grace that's extended to Egypt 
and it's really kind of interesting if you look at the passages in the law once they're out of Egypt and once they've they've moved out of that slavery situation mm-hmm. where God actually is seems to be have some some compassion for the kingdom and I, I do think you know I had a friend who used to say you know this has limitations but she used to say if they have a social security number they're they're not the enemy uh you know if they have a cell phone they're not the enemy uh but I do think that we have forgotten that people are not the enemy people right. people right. are manipulated people are used people are hurt by the enemy people sometimes lash out from the woundings that they've received from so-called Christians who don't know how to operate in love and compassion and don't mm-hmm. extend mercy to those outside the church uh I, you know I think we do have to get to that point where they will know that there were Christians by our love mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that that the compassion of the Lord leads to repentance uh, and that these things are absolutely verifiably true and that even though it requires faith to operate that way, that's what we've been called to as a life of faith because so often we think, oh, we're defending the church, we're defending our faith, we're defending God. Okay, if your God needs you to defend him, you aren't worshiping a God that's big enough to do anything for you. So mm-hmm. stop, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Right. And, and I also, you know, and of course, our best defense of God is the way we love people, mm-hmm. the way we live our lives. I mean, it, when it comes right down to it. Well, and, um, and I, I, w- I think we need to do a caveat here because some people have said love means letting people do whatever they want to, wherever they want to, however, sure. and to whoever. Uh, that's not love. Love does not let someone hurt themselves, hurt another person, or do something foolish. And so there is a point in time to confront and to, but to do so lovingly. And I know that's hard because we're not taught how to take a stand in love. We're taught how to get angry. We're taught how to blow up. We're taught how to, to run away, but not to just hold our ground. How to hit the block button. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so whenever we can learn how to hold our ground without having to lash out, that opens up room for conversation and real change within relationship. But as long Mm -hmm. as we're Mm -hmm. relying on anger as our, our defense against being hurt from people we don't agree with, we're always going to hurt them in return. And that's not operating in faith. So if we can say God will be true to his word. And if we just do what we're called to do, he will bring people to him because we're being compassionate. We're being loving. We're being merciful. And we're exemplifying the, those traits of our Lord in this earth. We're bringing mm-hmm. his kingdom mm-hmm. to rule on this planet. And people want to be a part of that. Even if their first knee-jerk reaction is to push it away because they have been hurt by other Christians. Once you get past that, they want to have that experience. And we're the ones who are responsible for bringing it to them. So did I yeah. cross over into preaching on that one? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I, I, maybe a little bit. The, the other thing I... Um... I know I'm just tacking a whole bunch of stuff on at the end. So this is why you got to listen to the whole show. Right. <laughs> um, the other thing, and I don't know if you have anything on this or if we, uh, is there anything um, with the syncretism and the high places? Is there anything that we can learn from that about the encounter on Mars Hill or the uh, events at Caesarea Philippi? You know, I, I, I've actually kind of been pondering that, but not for that reason. Um, I, I think what the challenges that all of us face, and possibly we can see it here with Solomon, is 
how do we take what's in front of us in our culture and society and use it as a tool to share truth? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we do know that Bethel, uh, which was another famous high place, was used. We've got archaeological digs that show that it was used for the worship of many gods. Uh, why God chose to reveal himself there, we don't know. Um, obviously, it was not a, a different location. I mean, it was something that everyone went there to worship. So what's mm-hmm. happening here? I don't, I, I, I'm still wrestling with that because I do think that there is a way that we are called to function within the, the, the limitations of our culture and to maybe even redeem elements of our culture, uh, be a part of the redemption process. Not that we can do it ourselves, but you know, to be active in that. Um, the reason why I was thinking about this is um, lately I've just been uh, pondering kind of ways to get myself busy with my writing again and kind of break back into that. And there is a TV show out there that has like this huge cult following, uh, not a cult, but cult following. And um, I've thought about, it deals with supernatural events and elements. And I thought it would be really kind of fun to like episode one, season one, what they get right, what they get wrong. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? I can see that would be fun. Because there's, uh, there's a lot of things that are right within, you know, little elements within different religions and different religious observances that are actually correct. And they do line up with scripture. And if they were completely against what scripture has to say, then I don't think anybody would buy into them. And so um, I think we have to be very vigilant not to just reject something wholesale and say there's no, no truth to be found, but we actually look at it and go, okay, so here's this truth. I can affirm this. That's wrong. I, I, I need to separate that out. Mm-hmm. And, but that takes wisdom and discernment and it takes maturity. And unfortunately, one of the things we've done in our Christian society is we don't teach wisdom and discernment or responsibility. We teach avoidance and abstinence to the point right. that we don't know right. how to deal with anything that's not completely in sync with what we've been taught to believe. Yep. And so I, I, I have to wonder, I, I w- wish I had more information on the high places. Um, you know, because these were kind of transient little areas. They didn't all have buildings. They didn't all have temples. We don't have a lot of inscriptions. We have a fair number, but obviously uh, when when each religion made their own inscription that dealt with that high place, they're only dealing with their religion. They aren't yep. going to tell you that this other God might have had some impact or um, influence on what happened there. They're going to focus on the God that they esteem the highest, which is exactly what the Bible does that's what we do as people we ignore those things that are inconvenient and we focus on the what supports our narrative uh, yeah. so i you know probably didn't answer your question at all but <laughs> no but uh, well we'll see more later on how it goes well do I, some I'm more just, research. i was curious yeah <laughs> uh, so anyway well uh i guess we're way over on time so i'm gonna let everyone it's a go. bonus since we weren't here last week Exactly. That's that's what we'll call it. So everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, if you enjoy what we're doing here, please uh, head over to patreon.com uh, slash Raven Creek SC if you want to give us a couple bucks. Um, if you uh, like us but don't feel like spending money on us, <laughs> hey, I get it. I mean, I know what I'm working with here. Um, the <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, feel free to uh, at least give us a like and a share, help people find the show. Maybe write us a review if you're so interested. <laughs> and uh, 
In the meantime, uh, Raven Creek SC on the social media is where you can find us. Uh, RavenCreekSC.com is the website um, where you can find show notes uh, for some shows and other podcasts <laughs> from the Raven Creek Social Club. And uh, in the meantime, I guess we'll see you on the internet. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.